Welcome to the Relentless Pursuit Podcast. A great task remains, and we all have a role we can play. But what do we do with the questions we have about missions, about walking with God, about ourselves? Well, here's a space for us to wrestle and discover together. We don't have to have it all figured out to take our next step. Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast. I'll be honest with you, today is a little bit of a heavier conversation, but y'all, I loved it. I talk with my friend Elijah today, who has been serving in North Africa for 15 years. So today he's going to share with us a lot of stories of just suffering, things that have been scary and hard and so much loss and things that they have really counted the cost of over the years. But I promise you, you will leave this episode feeling encouraged, deeply encouraged, as you consider what it might look like in your life to count the cost. So listen in to my conversation with Elijah. Just a heads up that this episode contains graphic content, including violence, death, and infant loss, and may not be appropriate for all ages. Today is a very fun episode, y'all, because it's kind of like a celebrity status. So around the halls of Pioneers, you'll hear Elijah's name kind of thrown around, and it's because he comes with these incredible experiences and stories, and he is just an incredible um, guy around our org. So I'm thrilled that you guys get to hear from him today. Elijah, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much, Emily. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Well, thanks for being willing to field all my questions. I've obviously been wanting to hear your stories for a long time now, and I'm thrilled that everyone else gets to hear them today too. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Let's just kind of begin a cold start here of tell me how this all got started because you ended up in Central Africa, or rather Northern Africa is what you'd probably call it, Um, but Northern Africa of all places. So tell me how you got there. Yeah. To provide a little context for your uh, listeners, my wife, Emma, and I uh, were both educators by trade, Um, actually never saw ourselves um, as missionaries, you know, kind of going to the mission field or or anything like that. Uh, I spent my days uh, with eight and nine-year-olds. I was a third grade teacher and uh, loved the opportunity to teach math and science and tell the kind of jokes that third grade teachers tell. Uh, oh yeah, rite of passage. But in the context of uh, being teachers, um, if you've heard of John Piper before, John Piper was our pastor. And uh, being at uh, our church, Pastor John would often say, Uh, that God has a heart for the nations. And if you love the glory of God, then you must have a heart for the nations too. And he would always say, there's only two roles. Uh, You're either a goer or you're a sender. And if you're not doing one of those two things, you're living in disobedience. And so uh, Emma and I would look at each other and, and, you know, we'd say, well, we're not goers. So um, let's start sending people. And so we heard of a a family that was headed to the Middle East and and got on their Barnabas team, which is a way that our church uh, supports people that are overseas. And we meet once a month and we pray for them and we send care packages. And when they come back from the field, we try and find a vehicle for them to use and line up opportunities to be able to share with people their stories. And and so in the context of uh, that kind of setting, uh, we just started to expose ourselves more and more to what God was doing around the world. And one particular thing that we did was we uh, we started reading through Operation World. We really wanted to oh, understand yeah. um, the heart of our friends uh, as they were overseas. And one particular day we were reading uh, about the country of Albania. And uh, it said at the bottom in the prayer request for Albania, it said, would you please pray for teachers to come to Albania. This is a closed country, but there's an open door for teachers to come in. And Emma looked at me and she said, would you ever do that? I said, (laughs) maybe. Would you ever do that? And she said, maybe. And I think that was a light bulb moment for us that, wow, I don't know what we believed before, but, but all of a sudden we realized that even as teachers, God could use our skill sets to make Christ known uh, around the world. And so that was a big moment for us. And I think it's how we started thinking about the possibility of serving overseas. Totally. Oh, I love that. How specific and kind of God to give you such a window into this could be you. You know, I could call you to come. And so 
Okay, yeah, so keep going. Say, he had to say teachers for me to hear him. That's right. <laughs> yeah, something you were already so passionate about. I love that. Um, okay, so what happened next? What what kind of happened after that? Yeah, so we uh, we immediately kind of started exploring the question together. And in fact, uh, when those friends of ours came back from the Middle East, we sort of shared with them, hey, the Lord's laid this on our heart and we're thinking about the possibility of going overseas. At, at that time, we were thinking of, uh, places like Iceland and Zimbabwe, and and we'd seen some nice pictures of those places, and it was similar yeah. to where we were from. And uh, but at that time, our friend asked us. He said, "Well, have you ever considered going to Muslims?" And I said to Joey, uh, our friend, I said, um, "Well, I'll be honest with you. I don't know very much about Islam." Uh, but the next day, uh, one of our neighbors, uh, we lived in the inner city and, and one of our neighbors, uh, crossed, uh, came across the alley. His name was Patrick and, uh, Patrick came towards my garage and said, uh, Hey, Elijah, my dad, or your dad told me the other month when he was helping me fix my sump pump, he said that you worked at a Christian school. Um, you know, can I ask you, uh, why do you like working at a Christian school or why do you do that? And. So I told him, uh, you know, all the reasons why I really love this school and, um, you know, kind of shared about how God wasn't just one subject, but we studied science and math because all of them were showing a, a creator. And when it came to came to behaviors at the school, you know, we talked with kids about what God says in his word about how we should treat each other. And I really believe that that's how God wanted us to live our lives, not just giving him a certain hour or a certain day of the week or a certain subject, but to give him all of our, of our lives. And when I got done sharing that, Patrick looked at me and he said, Elijah, would you be offended if I called you a Muslim? And I said, wait, Patrick, are you a Muslim? And, and he said, I am. And so I said, well, um, I, for, I imagine that's an honorable term for you then. And so I wouldn't be offended, but I think we think different things about Jesus. And before I knew it, I was running inside my house to grab my Bible. Patrick ran inside his house to grab his Quran. And we sat for three hours in the alley. Uh, Emma hadn't even realized that I had returned home from school. So when I came in at nightfall, I said, where have you been? And I said, do you remember the question that Joey asked us yesterday? And she said, you mean, would we ever consider going to Muslims? And I said, yeah. Did you know that Patrick is a Muslim? And I just spent three hours talking with him in the alley. I learned more about Islam in the last three hours than I have ever learned in my entire life. And wow. so the Lord did little things like that for Emma and I that little by little kind of directed us on this path. Uh, so one of the things that I always share, and I, I hope, you know, your listeners will hear this is, you know, on that path, as God starts stirring your heart for the nations, don't begrudge uh, the journey there. Uh, it takes time, but God knows what he's doing. And step by step, he will, he will guide you little by little to the place that he is calling you. And so don't begrudge that process. It's a beautiful process and it takes time as the Lord moves our hearts to the places that he's calling us. Yeah. I, wow. I love that line. You just said, don't begrudge the process. Is that what you said? I want to make sure I get it. I don't want to misquote you. Um, that is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really like that, especially because the progression you just shared with us, it, I mean, we get the really easy breezy version of you described it, you know, in two minutes time, but obviously that took, that was a long time, you know, that, that had spanned of first being inspired by Pastor John telling you, you know, if you're not a goer, you're a sender and vice versa That's right. to then being encouraged that your neighbor was a Muslim. And then you were able to learn and appreciate and, and, uh, I don't know. I just feel like this, these windows, these doors were opening for you so much. Your mind was expanding um, for the glory of God to be a goers. Um, yeah, that's yeah, absolutely wow. right. I mean, that was a process of, for us, it was a good two to three years of, yeah. uh, it, you know, and one of the things I encourage people to do is, is expose yourself as much as possible um, to things that are happening. Read books, read biographies, mm. talk to people that are overseas, give yourself as much opportunity uh, for the Lord to sow into you what he's calling you towards. Because as you meet with people, uh, he's going to excite your heart about certain things and maybe not so much about other things. Uh, right. I particularly remember, Emily, there was a time where uh, I was traveling away from the family for about a week and I took this book called Praying Through the uh, 100 Cities of the 1040 Window. Uh, and 
And I thought, man, I'll take this book. And it was just right in the middle of that process. You know, we were kind of saying, Lord, where do you want us to go? And and I didn't make it through the introduction of this book. The author said, why, you know, why do people focus on this small rectangle from 10 degrees north to 40 degrees north? And I, I had heard about it at our church, but I didn't know very much about it. And so he started sharing the statistics of how much money gets poured into uh, the places around the world that are already reached and how many mm-hmm. personnel we send to places where there already are churches and the gospel is there. And so I, I picked up the phone and I was in tears and, and I called Emma and, and I said, uh, I don't know exactly where the Lord wants us to go, but we got to go to the 1040 window. Hardly mm-hmm. anybody's going there. And so that was another little piece of that puzzle that the Lord used. Uh, we even took a, a short-term trip. And at the time, we didn't know exactly where we would end up. But we took the short-term trip just because as supporters of someone who's in the Middle East, we wanted to know what it felt like to be a minority somewhere. And, yeah. and so we went on this trip for the sole reason that we thought it would enhance our prayers. But Emma learned while we were there that she really loved North African culture. She loved the hospitality of people. She loved even the colors of their clothing. And so the Lord really used that combination of of her love of North African culture, my desire to go to the 1040 window, and started to really move us uh, towards North Africa. Oh, man. (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm feeling the suspense just building as you're talking. Let's fast forward a pinch and let's obviously assume that the, the process of actually getting yourselves overseas came with all that comes with and you were prepared, but you were there. So um, can you share with us then what was that first year like on the field? Because it's been what, 15 years now since that first yeah, year? So, okay. So obviously a lot's happened. So, but just take us back to what that very first year was like once you actually got there. Yeah, I mean, similar to most people, there um, there is all kind of challenges when you leave the familiar and the known. Uh, when you say goodbye to family and friends, and certainly uh, for Emma and I, that was a part of uh, our experience. Um, mm-hmm. So that was challenging in and of itself. But uh, we also... Um, had some very peculiar and particular challenges. Uh, Our first year on the field, uh, we lost three children. Um, So Mm. we haven't shared this yet, but uh, the Lord has blessed uh, Emma and I with eight children. Um, But uh, those are not the only children that the Lord has given to us. Uh, We have had 15 pregnancies over the year. Eight of those children uh, are with us. Um, Seven of them are not. Uh, Five of them, normal kind of early term miscarriage types, Um, two of them, some very difficult situations that took place. And so our first year on the field, we, we had three miscarriages. Um, Two of them were those early term types around seven or eight weeks, um, but still very challenging because we didn't have our family and friends uh, around us to walk uh, through that with us. But we got pregnant a third time and uh, Emma was out on a morning walk uh, which she liked to do. She was about 17 weeks along. So we made it past that 12 week mark. We were excited. We weren't going to lose this child. Um, and we had got to listen to the baby's heartbeat. And uh, as Emma was out on her walk, uh, she turned down a side street. And what she didn't realize was uh, that there were two uh, North African men that were following her. She had an iPod that she would listen to Uh, music on. And once she turned down that side street where there were not many people, uh, these two men grabbed her from behind. Uh, They threw Emma to the ground, started kicking and beating her. They eventually grabbed hold of the iPod, started dragging her around until the lanyard that was had it attached to her neck finally snapped and they ran off. Emma came home stumbling in the doorway Um, It was obvious that something traumatic had happened to her. Uh, She was in tears and fairly marked up from the experience. And about three weeks later, we went into the hospital and Emma delivered uh, a little baby boy dead at 20 weeks. The doctor said uh, whether it was a result of the trauma, uh, the emotional trauma or the physical trauma, they weren't sure, but that was the cause of of our little baby's death. And uh, he was about the size of my hand, uh, Emily, and um, we could see that he was a boy, uh, and we named him Enoch, because it says in Genesis that Enoch walked with God, 
And then he was no more for God took him. And so it was in that first year that we discovered something very challenging uh, to us. And that's the reality that suffering is a part of the Christian experience. There's an interesting uh, place in, in Timothy. I remember reading it before we went to the field, didn't think a lot of it, but it came more into focus as, as we arrived on the field and walked through these things. But Paul says to uh, Timothy, uh, he says, Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And as I thought about that verse, I, I thought, how can Paul say that? Yeah. My dad has never said anything to me like that. He's never said, Elijah, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. My elders, as wonderful as they are, have never said anything like that to me. My other friends and family haven't said things like that to me. And yet here's Paul, who is like a father to Timothy, saying, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't the first time. He, said, he says this over and over again. Uh, in fact, he says in another place in, in the book of Second Timothy, um, he says, in fact, uh, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. So if someone read what he said to Timothy and thought, oh, that's just for Timothy. No, it's not. <laughs> all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. And even Paul himself wasn't the first, Emily. I mean, Jesus was saying that to his disciples. When he spoke with his disciples uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And, and for, you know, if you didn't grow up in, in the type of setting where you understand that dynamic, that's not a good situation for the sheep. Yeah. <laughs> to be right. going out in the midst of wolves is not a good situation. And so we just started to see that suffering is the norm. It's a normal part of the Christian spirit experience. But I think it's particularly challenging for us as Westerners because everything in our culture says, run from that. And yet the Lord uses the sufferings that we walk through to make the gospel visible, to make his love and his joy and his peace visible to those who are around us. And so that was something our first year on the field that Emma and I really had to learn afresh uh, as we walked through uh, the loss of children. Yeah. Well, per usual, I feel very speechless. I, yeah, I feel the heartbreak of, of that story and of your first year and just the, the total, like you said, it's just the suffering that we, that, Oh, wow. Sorry. I don't even know where I'm going with that except to just say that I am, I'm so sorry. And I feel it's palpable, your, your encouragement from the scriptures of how God promises these sufferings and he promises himself. Mm -hmm. So that's right. Um, oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And if that was just your first year, I can't imagine what's about to be shared from the last 15 years, but um, would you mind kind of inviting us now a little bit further into the story of, um, could you almost put together a theme then of, if that was the theme from your first year, was maybe just a picture of suffering, what would you say would be a theme from, yeah, the next 14 years, if you could? Yeah. Well, I, I think there probably was a part of me I don't know if I'd say the same thing now, Emily, but there probably was a part of me after that first year that would have wished the theme changed. Oh, <laughs> I think for Emma and 100%. I, there was a lot of there was a lot of wrestling with the Lord. Um, Lord, we're holding open hands to receive uh, children as a blessing from you. Why are you taking them away? And there was some wrestling uh, with the Lord. In fact, I remember one of the things that Emma said to me after we lost Enoch was she said. Can we name each of the children that we've lost? I, I'm tired of calling them miscarriage number one and miscarriage number two. And so one of the kids we named Jacob. And part of it was because we just felt the struggle. We felt like we were wrestling oh, yeah. with the Lord yeah. uh, during that time. So uh, maybe I would have wished at that time, but that has not been the case for us. In fact, I, I would tell you, Emily, honestly, that the theme of our 15 years on the field has been um, there is a cost 
to taking mm. the gospel to the nations. And if I could add one little part to that, I would say, and he is worth every cost. Mm. So I, I just think, and, and so maybe just to give you a little background as to what that has looked like. Um, our second year uh, in the country where we were working, we got caught in the middle of a coup. Uh, so the um, rebels in that country were fed up with the government and the, and the direction that the government was taking things. And so uh, they had acquired weapons. They had done a lot of different things and they mustered themselves and came towards the capital. Uh, while they were on the way that particular uh, day, uh, Emma had gone uh, uh, to a gathering of of different people. And, and I was back at the home with the kids. Uh, we had two kids at the time. And, and, uh, just when I got back home after dropping her off, she called and on the phone, she was frantic. And she said, uh, Elijah, they're, they're closing the bridges. They're closing the, and, and all of a sudden the call got cut. And as it got cut, I could hear in the distance the rat-a-tat-tat of AK-47s going off. Shortly after that, I started to hear the sounds of mortar bombs. Now, I grew up in America. I have no clue what any of this means. I didn't grow up in a war zone. Yeah. So I didn't know if uh, if this fighting was happening in our neighborhood, if it was five miles away, if it was 20 miles away. But I do remember how real it was to me that night as I sat in bed with my kids and heard gunfire and bombs going off. I remember thinking to myself, we didn't live far away from a a river, and that's what separated us uh, from Emma. And and I thought to myself, I wonder if I should try and swim across the river with the kids uh, to get us out of this situation. The next morning, uh, around noon, the fighting started to die down. And uh, I remember that it was Mother's Day because I thought to myself, I'm sure Emma's freaking out. Um, (laughs) This would be a really good Mother's Day present if we could find a way to get back to her. And so the kids and I set out after the gunfire had died down and we went to a place where the bridge crossed the river and I saw a police officer there and he said, what are you doing? And so I explained to him in a very culturally appropriate way in their language. I said, uh, the kids have been separated from their mother since yesterday uh, since the fighting started and they've been crying and they miss their mother and they really want to see her. And so the police officer said, oh, okay, go ahead, you know, go across the bridge. And so I wound my way up the ramp. And when I got to the top of the ramp, there was an army official there. And he said the same thing. What are you doing? So I told him uh, the same reason for why I wanted to get across the bridge. And he said, I don't care. We're fighting the rebels. Get back inside your house. And so uh, my four-year-old son at the time, was in tears. And he said, uh, Papa, can you ask the police officer to arrest the army guy? And I said, I'm sorry, buddy. I don't think it works that way in this situation. And and as we wound our way through the streets, trying to find a way to get back to Emma, about a mile from our home uh, were dead bodies strewn all over the streets, cars that had been mortar bombed, uh, burned out, melted to the pavement. And so I've often shared uh, with people that our kids have seen more in their short lives than most people will in their entire lifetimes. Yeah. But we did eventually, we were reunited with Emma. And finally, by our third year, uh, we had been given all the permission so that we could move to the place where our team was working and, and where we were sharing the gospel. I had found a job uh, working uh, with an organization that was drilling wells. Um, and so we would uh, we would go out to these places, and uh, as we went there, we were amazed by how open people were to the gospel. It wasn't like being in the capital, uh, where if we shared something about Jesus, they would share something about Muhammad. If we shared something about the Bible, they would share something about the Quran. But as we got out to this place, because of the of the fighting and the wars that were happening, there was a real openness uh, to the gospel. People had questions. Uh, And we were having lots of opportunities to be able to share the gospel with people. Unfortunately, our time out there did not last very long. Uh, In the third month that we were out there, investigators showed up at our offices, said, we have a report that you have Bibles in your offices. Unbeknownst to me, the director of the organization had okayed a shipment of 50 boxes, 3,400 Bibles. And uh, as they searched through our offices, uh, they eventually found these Bibles. Uh, Ten vehicles showed up with 20 uh, armed officers, and I was taken off to prison uh, with three of my workers. 
I spent three days in and out of, of prison being interrogated as to my activities and the activities of the organization. Uh, it became obvious that we were going to have to close up uh, the organization. And so as we made our way back to the Capitol um, and had to close down the organization, uh, we heard news uh, that uh, someone had seen us on Al Jazeera. Now, for your listeners, maybe some people know what Al Jazeera is, maybe others don't. Uh, Al Jazeera is kind of the uh, Middle East television network that is a quasi CNN news network, but they also happen to show the beheadings of like ISIS and Al Qaeda. And that's the kind of mixture uh, that you get on Al Jazeera. And so uh, I got a call from someone in the expat community and they said, uh, Elijah, you were just on Al Jazeera for five minutes. They had videos of your face with a voiceover saying, this is an Israeli organization. The director is a CIA operative uh, and they've brainwashed 10,000 children. Uh, in our country. And uh, he said, I got a call from someone in the government and they said that there are terrorists that are out looking for you right now. And so someone's going to pick you up at nightfall and they hit our family uh, in a eight by 10 room with no windows for about five days until they could secure our passports. And we were evacuated out of the country in the middle of the night. So I'm blacklisted currently in that country, which is what led us to our second country of ministry, where we have now been for the last 12 years. Elijah, stories like this are, I mean, I've only heard very few of these types of stories, kind of these more extreme scenarios of, um, you know, a Christian's involvement overseas. And every time I do, blaring like in a huge marquee in my head, I think, why didn't you just leave? Like, like, um, before it got that crazy, like, why'd you stay? Because I, I think it's just the fear in me thinking like, that sounds really hard, like run away. Like I, like, um, protect yourself kind of. And so I'm just, wow. I'm, I feel entirely speechless in this episode because I don't know what to say. I'm just, I am so thankful for your endurance of faith. Um, and I know it keeps going. We aren't even halfway through your stories yet. But I just, I mean, I can't imagine that the the feelings of just fear, intimidation, being in a foreign prison, and you're wondering what your family is, you know, what's happening to your family, and then being reunited, but still believing that the glory of God covers you and leads you, that yeah. it is worth serving. And, oh, it just keeps going. So, yeah, I would say that your theme of suffering from that first year, it sounds like it really carried on with you, even into the next yeah. country that you all served in. Um, yeah. Even as we, you know, I can tell you, Emily, even as we arrived in that second country, it might sound weird to your listeners, but actually uh, our fourth year on the field in that new country was our hardest year that we've ever experienced. And and I would say that the majority, I mean, we, we might just be wimps, but the the majority of it was... <laughs> Um, We were just sick the entire year. And so one of the sort of hallmarks of the second country that we were in, it was a neighboring country, is that there's just not a whole lot of infrastructure. And so most people uh, don't have things like toilets and a sewer system. And so uh, people go to the bathroom right outside their homes in the streets. And so as you can imagine, in places like this, diseases spread uh, rampantly. And so our first year uh, in this second country our family was just constantly sick. Uh, we, we, we joke around with our family and friends that uh, one saving grace was that there always seemed to be one out of the five of us that was healthy enough to wash the vomit sheets that, you know, we were oh. all throwing up in different things. And, and yeah. God was gracious enough to always have one person who was healthy enough to be doing that. Carry the but rest. Just as an, just as an indication, um, Uh, Emma gave birth to our fourth child uh, that first year in the second country. And as we were on our way to the capital to register her birth uh, with the U.S. Embassy, uh, I started getting really sick. And uh, on the third day, I started vomiting, having chills and fevers. And and on the third day, for me, it just blanks out. I don't remember anything of what Mm. happened. And all I know is from the stories that I've I've heard Emma tell. But uh, at some point, uh, I did not remember the names of my children. And so Emma very was getting very scared. She sent out a prayer update to everyone, said, would you please be praying for 
uh, Elijah, he's become really sick. Um, he's been sick for most of this year, but um, now it seems really, really scary. And they took me in and ran some different tests and it came back that I had um, something called malaria falciparum. Uh, we call it cerebral malaria. That's the deadliest oh, wow. strain of, of malaria. Uh, doesn't matter where you are, um, there's, there's a 50-50 chance whether you live or die. And uh, it attacks the brain. And so uh, my body was fighting against this. They tried different medications, uh, malaria medications. They weren't working. And then there was a, a British doctor uh, that had been setting, he was setting up a new hospital. And he said, uh, I have this medication that used to be used back in the 70s called quinine. Um, why don't you bring Elijah over to my house and I'll set up a hospital bed for him. And, and, uh, he cared for me and by the grace of God and thankful to quinine, I'm still alive today. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it continued even in our new country, just, uh, some of those challenges of whether it's health or instability or danger, uh, there, there are those challenges. Um, and, and yet I would say this uh, again, I think the Lord precisely uses those challenges that we face. And I don't just say this for people that go overseas. I say this for people in America. People don't learn about your love for God or your peace in God when you're sitting on your sofa. They learn it when you're going through suffering. Yeah. It's when you're walking through the loss of a job or the diagnosis of cancer. It's at those moments when people see a peace that passes understanding. They see a love that doesn't make sense that they start to say, you know, there's this passage in first Peter where Peter says, always be ready for the reason of the hope that is in you to be to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you. And I remember when our pastor was preaching on that passage once in, in 1 Peter 3, Pastor John said, let me ask you a question. As well as moments where I was sitting in the church and I felt like he was only preaching to me. He said, <laughs> he said uh, can I ask you, when's the last time someone asked you for the hope that you have? And I was sitting there as a 24-year-old. And I honestly thought over my life, Emily, and I could not remember a time where anybody had ever asked me for the reason of the hope that was within me. And Pastor John said, can I challenge you that even while you ready yourself to give that answer, just as Peter encourages you here, would you pray that God would cause you to live your life in such a way that people would want to ask you for wow. the reason of the hope that you have? Wow. Because maybe, <laughs> maybe one of the reasons why nobody has asked you that is because your life looks the exact same as theirs. It looks like you're right. living for power. It looks like you're living for prestige. It looks like you're living for money. It looks like you're living for possessions. It looks like you're living for likes on social media. But when you invite risk and suffering and challenge into your life for the sake of others, and there's a peace that pushes through that, there's a love that pushes through that, that's where someone says, there's something different going on in your life. And I want to know what that is. And so I really believe, in fact, if, if I can draw back one thing to that, that first country uh, that we were in, Emily, uh, there was a lot of suffering in that country because of the war. There's, I mean, when you met with people, you would hear almost every person you met would have stories of family members that were lost, aunts and uncles that were killed in the war. And so when we always ask the Lord, Lord, why did you, why did you take Enoch? There was a time where the United Nations asked me to go into this refugee camp. There was a man who hadn't spoken for eight years. They didn't really know how to engage with him. And, and I spoke Arabic. And so they said, would you be willing to go in and, and sit down with this guy? We're trying to find out what's happened, talk with his family members. And so I went in and, and sat down and, and a bunch of his brothers were, were there with him. And so I, I asked, can you explain to me, you know, what's happened in this man's life? And was he born this way? And so they started to tell me his story. And they said, he hasn't spoken for eight years because eight years ago, our enemies came into our village and they grabbed all seven of his children 
and they killed them in front of his eyes. And since that day, he hasn't spoken. And I watched him as tears started to come down his face. And I can't ever imagine what that was like. But because of losing Enoch, I was able to sit there and weep with this man. And that was God. That was part of God's gift. Emma and I don't fully understand all the reasons why God has done the things that he's done. But that's one thing that we can say was a gift that God gave to us in our little son, Enoch. Was that we had an ability to weep with those who weep because we knew what it was like to have hoped in seeing a child or being with a child and then to lose that child to violence. And so I think when we're around others who have experienced loss, as they watch us go through loss and how we react and how the Lord ministers to us, there's that really well-known passage, I want to say it's 2 Corinthians 1, where it says, it is for your comfort that we face these various trials, because in the comfort that we have received from Christ, we now pass that comfort onto you as you face similar trials. And so there is something about going through suffering that God uses our suffering to minister to others that are around us so that they would know the hope, the joy, the peace, the love, the comfort that only Christ can give us in our lives. And so it is not fun to go through. I don't think anybody's saying like, let's, let's go out there and find it. Yeah. But I yeah. think we really do need to fight to not run from it, to be mm. open to know that suffering and persecution will come in our lives and that God can use it for his glory and for our joy. Wow. You've got me so curious now. Uh, I guess from that time of suffering where you learned these unreal lessons and you learned that that shared trauma of, of suffering can be such an open door for people. I mean, it can really feel disarming because you have those shared experiences. And so was there anybody else that you feel like over that time of, of ministering among, you know, Northern African people, um, were there any gospel opportunities that I guess were a result of the open door from your shared suffering? Yeah, sometimes, I mean, Sometimes it's not even that people are suffering the exact same thing. Sometimes it's where your suffering brings you. So one of the best examples I can think of is, you know, when Jesus said, you will be brought before rulers for my name's sake, but don't worry about what you will say for words will be given to you in that moment. And so I, I remember when, uh, when I was in prison uh, in the first country that we were in, I was assigned uh, this guard who so I would I would go to these different army generals and uh, you know military people who all had these different questions and would interrogate me and stuff and um, but one of the saving graces was at the end of the day they didn't make me stay in the prison they allowed me to go to my house and so this guard would come back to the house and so he got to meet Emma and meet the kids and and so for over those three days he kind of got to know us a little bit and watched our interactions and stuff and so on the third day we were waiting. Um, to speak to another military general. And uh, this guy's name was Ahmed. And, and he, he said to me, uh, Elijah, I have a question for you. He said, I've been watching you and your wife uh, interact. And Emma is a really good wife. She listens to what you say. She does what you ask her to do. She keeps your home nice. She says good things about you to other people. But Elijah, I have a problem. My wife is a bad wife. She doesn't do what I tell her to do. She doesn't, you know, do all these things that a Muslim wife should do. And so my question for you, Elijah, is how do I make my wife be a good wife like your wife? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so I said, Whoa. oh, you know, Ahmed, I said, uh, have you ever read from God's word? And he said, no. And I said, I really want to encourage you to read from God's word because I said, I think I know the reason why your wife isn't a good wife. And so Ahmed, you know, it's kind of on the, figuratively speaking, on the edge of his feet, he's, seat, oh, yeah. he's pretty excited. And, and he said, well, you know, what is it? And I said, Ahmed, 
I think your wife is a bad wife because you're a bad husband. Wow. And there was this, you know, flash across his eyes, kind of part <laughs> inquisitive and part like, what do you mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so he asked that, you know, what do you mean? And I said, well, Ahmed, if you read in God's word, God teaches us in his word that he designed marriage to be a picture to the world of what God's love looks like for his people as seen in the husband and what the people of God's love should look like uh, towards God in the picture of a wife and the way that they interact. He has encouraged uh, the people of God to live out their lives and live out their marriages in such a way that people might see that accurately. Right. And so yeah. I haven't been married a long time, Ahmed, but what I can tell you is that in my short years of marriage, I have never seen a woman when a man is loving his wife the way that God tells him to. And he gives these examples of the way that Jesus loved the people of God. He laid his life down um, for them. That when a man loves a woman in that way, I have never seen a woman who doesn't want to stand by her man and walk with him together through life. And so that was, you know, did a you wonderful see the explosion from the top of his head when you said that? Just <laughs> he could probably couldn't believe what he was hearing. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, really, as I talked with him, there there was this initial anger that really started to subside because I think. God was moving on Ahmed's heart. And I think yeah, yeah. what what the word of God says was making sense. You know, yeah. that, that there was truth there. And and he couldn't deny what he was seeing in Emma and I's marriage. Right. Um, right. And so that's just one of those examples where you might, you know, we might sit there and say, like, why do I, you know, I came here to share the gospel. Why am I sitting here trying, you know, answering questions about why we have Bibles? What is a Bible gonna do to hurt anyone? Yeah. Uh, I remember sitting with some of the generals and they would say, you know, what do you do with these Bibles? And I said, well, I have a question for you. I said, if someone asks you, if you have a book that you could recommend that would give them the answers to life, what would you tell them? And I said, well, I would tell them to go to the Quran and, and read what Muhammad says and listen to his sayings. And I said, yeah, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so wouldn't I be a hypocrite if I didn't give uh, someone the Bible when they ask, uh, what, it, what should I read if I want to understand life? And so, uh, yeah, it's not like I do that during the day while I'm fixing wells and things like that. But if I'm having a conversation at night with a friend and they have serious questions, then I take that as an opportunity to have a conversation with them. They tell me about their faith. I tell them about my faith. And so a lot of these people had... Uh, some very, you know, in the beginning, some very strong questions. But as we talked more and more, the Lord was really opening doors. And so things that we might go, why did this happen? The Lord knows. Uh, he has good purposes and he gives you opportunities, even in the midst of suffering, just by virtue of the place that you're standing and who you're interacting with to be able to share about Christ with others. Well, and can I add to that? That the opportunities, I mean, it was like the, you know, the ball was on the tee, kind of the visual I have, but you had to swing. I mean, the opportunity could have been there all day, but you and Emma were completely available and faithful and bold, may I add, to, I don't know, to respond to those, to take take courage, take obedience, and then have those conversations and say those kind of harder things about the reality of our, you know, our lives and our eternities. And so I think it's, yeah. it's like a yes. And like, yes, there were opportunities, yeah. but you had to respond to them for them to be, you know, an actual, I guess, opportunity. And so yeah. I'm, Oh, wow. That's incredible. I can't even picture what it would look like to see a jailer, like bring someone, you know, back to their house for a few hours. And, um, I to don't that know. Point, yeah. uh, Emily, can, can I share one of my favorite stories about Emma that actually really speaks to this point? Oh, please do. Uh, that, that suffering opens doors. Um, so in uh, 2016, uh, we were um, pregnant with child number seven. And uh, Emma had gone into our uh, the little clinic at our village to speak with some of the midwives. And 
Uh, people would really laugh if you saw some of the uh, healthcare over there. Uh, they still use these wooden cones, uh, the, these cylinders to listen to the baby's heartbeat. <laughs> oh my gosh. They don't even have stethoscopes. Uh, and so yeah. uh, Emma would mainly go in there because uh, she just loved to talk to other women that were pregnant. And so this opened doors for relationships. And uh, I would ask her when she came back, oh, what did the midwife say? And she would say, oh, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention that I got to talk to this woman though <laughs> and share about Jesus. And uh, so one particular day she came back and, and in her medical journal, it said uh, they had written in, uh, they had written down that this birth is going to be an emergency birth uh, in the local oh, language. Wow. And so typical, I asked Emma, I said, you know, why did they write this? And she's like, I don't know. And so we went, I said, let's go back to the clinic. And so we went back there and asked them and they said, well, your baby's been measuring small. And so we expect that this is going to be an emergency birth. And so we called our doctors in America. And they said, um, Elijah, you guys need to get an ultrasound immediately. Um, this is really concerning. And so uh, we didn't have an ultrasound machine in our village. So we got in our car the next morning, we drove two days uh, to get to the capital city uh, where we got an ultrasound and it confirmed uh, what the midwives had suspected that our baby was measuring small. But even in the capital city, they couldn't explain to us why that was. And so again, we phoned up our doctors and they said, Elijah, you really need to get Emma back to the States. Uh, they were very nervous that Emma was malnourished and that likely uh, our little baby might be shutting down. And so they thought we're going to have to do an emergency C-section as soon as she lands. And so the next morning we got Emma on a plane and the other six kids and I got on a plane about 24 hours later and came back and uh, Emma went through a barrage of tests and uh, we got back just in time. Uh, they didn't know the exact diagnosis, but there were enough issues that they found. They realized that actually the problem, the problem wasn't with Emma, but that actually um, the plethora of issues, a lack of a stomach, the ventricles of the heart switched around. What they pointed to is, is that our little baby girl likely had a genetic abnormality. We found out later um, that our little baby girl had trisomy 22, which is considered to be incompatible with life. And so there we sat, uh, Emma and I, with our two oldest kids on the bed as the doctors delivered this news. And we're crying together and, and praying. And uh, my, uh, my little daughter, uh, she was 11 at the time. Uh, she's 16 years old now. But uh, at that time, she was 11 years old. And, and our little daughter, Joy, she she prayed and she said, God, would you please help our little sister to be born so that we could tell her that God loves her and that we love her. And I looked at Emma and I said, if, if you're God, how do you not answer that prayer? Hmm. And God did. About six weeks later, our little baby girl defied the odds. Only one in 40,000 babies with trisomy 22 even make it to birth. Oh, my God! And she made it to birth. We and the kids had 90 minutes, 90 precious minutes to hold our little baby daughter. We named her Serenity. We had 90 minutes with her to tell her that we loved her, that God loved her. And I remember sitting at that time and uh, with Emma and this now had been, we, we had been at this for 10 years and it, it had been kind of just constant blow after blow after blow. And as a husband, I just felt the need to really lay this out before Emma. And so I said to her, I said, honey, I love you. I know that it's been a hard 10 years and I just want to have a check-in. How are you doing? If you feel like it's time to to come back to the States, to say, it's, it's been a wonderful 10 years, Lord, we trust that you've used these things. Um, I'm very open to that, but how are you feeling right now? And Emma looked at me and she said, Elijah, I think that God has more work for us to do. Hmm. So we had a funeral for serenity and, and a month later, uh, we were back in our country. And when we got back there, there was a woman that, so I'm going to catch you up to what had happened before we left. Um, uh, people in that, uh, in this country, when someone has a baby, about a week after the baby's born, they have a naming ceremony. And so they invite mm. all the neighbors and friends. And so we did the same thing. We thought, what a great way to uh, kind of unite ourselves with the community. And 
And so we uh, invited everyone and uh, people came from all the surrounding villages. They parked their camels at the gate. Everybody wanted to see the first white baby, you know, that was born in our village. And uh, the men and I met on one side of the street. And so uh, the Emma and the women met on the other side of the street. And, and uh, after about four or five hours of eating and fellowship together, uh, then I came out and I announced the name of the baby. And uh, it was just a very festive day. But our house helper uh, at that time, uh, a couple days after, she and Emma were sitting outside and they were washing clothes. Um, now, we don't, we don't have electricity uh, in this country. And so washing clothes just looks like uh, water in a round plastic basin. And you dunk the clothes down in the water. And then you grab bar soap and you scrub it and mm. agitate the clothes together against itself. And then you dip it back in the water and uh, rinse it and hang it up in the line. And so they were doing that together. And, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, our house helper, her name was Miriam. Uh, Miriam said to Emma, she said, Emma, why won't God give me babies? And Emma looked up and there were tears coming down Miriam's cheek. And she said, what do you mean, Miriam? And Miriam said, Emma, for eight years, I haven't been able to have children. And I think my husband's going to divorce me. Mm. And so Emma concerned said, well, have you gone to see a doctor? Do you know why this is? And she said, I've gone to see national doctors. I've gone to see international doctors. I've even gone to see local witch doctors. And none of them have been able to help me or explain to me why I haven't been able to have children. But Emma, I think I know the reason why. And Emma said, what is it? And she said, for 12 years, every month I bleed like most women do, but more so. And I don't understand how that's related to having children, but I think it has something to do with that. And as Emma was listening to all this, she said to Miriam, she said, Miriam, have you ever read the Gospels? And Miriam said, no. She said, there's a story about a woman who had a problem with bleeding that sounds very similar to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you about what happened to her and what Jesus did for her? And Miriam said, yeah. And so Emma told her about the story of the woman who came and had the problem of bleeding and came and touched the hem of Jesus's garment. She told the story three times to her and then went through a series of questions. And one of the questions that she asked to Miriam was, she said, do you remember what it was that Jesus said was the reason for why this woman was healed? And Miriam thought for a moment and she said, he said it was her faith. And Emma said, that's right, Miriam. And in another place in God's word, it says that this faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. Miriam, would you like to hear more of God's word with me and pray that he gives you this kind of faith? And Miriam said, yes. And so Emma and Miriam had been reading the Bible all the way up to the point where we went back to deliver serenity. Mm. And this point when I said to Emma, do you want to hang it up right now? And she said, I think God has more for us. So now we come back to our country. And when we get back, Miriam is very excited. We've been gone uh, for about two or three months. And she is very excited to tell Emma about something that has happened. And so she starts to tell Emma this story. She said, while you were gone, my family appointed me to go with my nephew who was very sick. He had some eye problem. And so we don't have a very good hospital in our village. And so they appointed me to take him to a village about six hours away uh, and to bring him to a doctor. And so they had given her some food and money. And, uh, and so she had went. And uh, there were a lot of people waiting to see the doctor in that city. And so she had to wait a number of days. And as the days went on, she started to run out of food and money. And one of the things that she thought about uh, and, and told this to Emma was she said, Emma, I kept thinking back of all the stories that we would read from God's word and what you would say that God doesn't love just one people. 
Notice that it didn't matter if you were an Israelite or a Moabite or an Ammonite, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all you got to do, Miriam. And so as I was running out of money, one day, Emma, I prayed. And Emma was so excited when she was hearing this. And she's like, oh, Miriam, I'm so excited for you. Like, how did you pray? What did you say? (laughs) And Miriam said, I just said, God, help. (laughs) But she said, Emma, that night I had a dream. And in my dream, this man who was dressed in white and shining came up behind me and he rested his hand on my shoulder and he said, Miriam, it's going to be okay. And at the moment that he put his hand on my shoulder, Emma, I had this peace that went through my body in the dream and just this feeling of goodness. And when I woke up in the morning, I still had the feeling. And later that morning, a woman came walking into the hospital and walked all the way up to me. And she said, Miriam, what do you need? And I looked at this woman, Emma. I didn't know who this woman was. But I just decided to tell her, well, I brought my nephew here. He's got an eye problem and we ran out of food and money. And I don't know how I'm going to pay the doctor. And this woman said, let me see if I can help you, Miriam. So she was gone for an hour and then she came back and she had this basket and she set it down in front of me and she said, Jesus loves you, Miriam. And then she walked away and I didn't even know who this woman was. But then I started, uh, you know, going through the basket and there's food and vegetables and fruit and and uh, crackers and, and all kinds of things in this basket. And then under the food is money. And wouldn't you know, Emma, there was just enough money to pay the doctor when my nephew saw him and to get tickets for us to ride back here to the village. And at this point in the story, Emma's so excited. And so once Miriam gets done, Emma said, Miriam, I think that was Jesus in your dream. To which Miriam replies, I know, and I've been telling all of my friends, if they believe in Jesus the way that I do, that they'll be in heaven with me someday. And so Emma came to excitedly report, Elijah, Miriam believes in Jesus. And not only that, she is starting to share with her family and friends around her about how to walk with God and how to have faith in Christ and be forgiven of sins. And so I I really, I I can't stress this enough. I am amazed Uh, And and this is the privilege of our work that God has given to us, Emily, is that as far as we know, Miriam is the first female believer in the history of her people. Oh, my God. And that's something that Emma, just five months before that, I sat there asking Emma, do you want to hang it up? And nobody, absolutely nobody would have faulted her Yeah. for saying it's time to be done. That's right. Yeah. But she didn't. And God started bringing fruit. The, the most fruitful uh, years of our service so far have been these last five years. And it was after Emma said to me, God has more work for us to do. And so I just see over and over again how a willingness to enter into hardship, how God uses that. He puts you in places. He opens up doors. He gives conversations uh, when you're willing to walk through those things and trust him for the grace and the strength, the peace and the joy to go through those things for his glory and for the joy of others. Elijah, these stories, I I mean, they are, they, they could be a book. They should be a book. I'm just beside myself, but I see what you mean about, I mean, this theme is all coming together. It began with suffering. And then as time goes on, it takes the shape of we're counting the cost each and every day mm-hmm. through every, you know, sickness, through every coup, through every tragic loss of a baby. I mean, whatever these, these hardships have been, um, Y'all have kept responding to Jesus and he has blessed you yeah. and given you um, these stories of faith with 
unlikely people. I mean, your house helper, sweet Miriam, who potentially is the first of all her people Mm. and all of his trained to trust Jesus. I mean, so your perseverance and your counting of the cost through suffering has brought life to the nations. Um, Jesus has brought life to the nations and we stand and we rally and we celebrate with you. Um, Oh, I'm just, I'm so thankful for this. I want you to send us out on a note, if you can, Elijah, of um, what would you tell the audience right now about missions? Obviously, this whole episode, they could rewind it and listen to all of it again and hear just even the connection of God's word and how it spurs on this ministry and where where you've personally seen like the connection of um, Paul's words. I mean, just connect directly to your life, whatever it's been. But if there was kind of just like a parting thought of if you could leave us with this, what would it be? Yeah, actually, this isn't even really hard for me. Um, I'm talking to you from (laughs) uh, a college uh, out in Colorado where I was sitting today with college students. And so this is exactly what I shared with them. Okay. And as I shared some of these stories, um, I I pleaded with them and and I want to plead with your audience right now. Um, We live in a place that is doing everything it can to get you to believe that in order to find happiness and to make a difference in this world, if you can find the right spouse, if you can save up money, if you can get a nice house, if you can get some nice vehicles, if you can have a good social media presence, that that is going to make you happy in life. And I sat with these college students this morning. And I plead right now with your listeners, don't believe that lie. Do not believe that those are the things that are going to make you happy in life. And if you want to see any evidence of that, just look at Hollywood. They've got all the money. They've got everything you could ask for. And there are broken marriages. There are people that are taking their lives because they're not finding happiness. And so what I love to share with people is in order to find happiness, in order to make a difference in this world, you don't have to have a lot of money. You don't need to have a lot of possessions. You don't need to have a pedigree that you were born into a a prestigious family. You don't need to be some kind of NASA scientist who's one of the smartest people in the world. You don't need to have a great social media presence with some of the most likes of of anybody around you. Those are not the things that you need. In order to find happiness and to make a worldwide difference, you just need to know a few simple truths. There's a verse that we all know well, and it talks about the treasure that we have in these jars of clay. And, And It's so tempting. We do this in our lives where we try and present ourselves as people who have our lives put together. I've got it figured out. I don't have many weaknesses. And and we try to put that off. But when we're in our beds at night, we know how true that phrase is, jars of clay. We are weak and life is hard. And how amazing is it, Emily, that God would give to us his spirit He would put this treasure into these jars of clay and say, now, go and make me known. And so what I want to plead with your audience is make much of Christ. Use your life. Use your time and your money. Spend it all for the sake of Christ. I'm not saying that it has to be overseas. It may be it may be here in your native country, in your neighborhood, but there are ways that you can live your life that doesn't look like everybody else around you. And I would plead with you, live your life in that way. Spend yourself to make much of Christ so that he would be glorified and that others around you would be satisfied in him. And that is what is going to bring you true happiness in your life. And so that's what I wish for your um, Mm -hmm. listeners. And I just thank you for the opportunity uh, today to share some of those things with your audience. Amen. Thank you, 
so much for that parting word. I don't want to get in the way of any of that. I want that to go well with everyone today listening. And I hope you know too that um, you were speaking directly to me as well. I'm I feel very encouraged and bolstered as a result of your parting words. Elijah, thank you so much um, for your faith, for your stories, for your time today. I mean, obviously, you just spared an hour with me to invite me into these stories and your experiences of walking with God and making him known among the nations. So we thank you. We thank you. And uh, yeah, we bless your future work as well for you and Emma as you continue to raise your children in the way they should go and to make disciples of all nations. Um, we bless that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Emily. The pleasure has been mine and all glory be to God. If y'all are anything like me, my head is still spinning from my conversation with Elijah, but did you know that Pioneers has another podcast? It's called the Maverick Podcast. And if you enjoyed the stories today from Elijah from North Africa, then you will love the story that we share on the Maverick Podcast. So unlike Relentless Pursuit, which is more conversational in how we interview our field workers, the Maverick Podcast is more similar in style to a true crime podcast in that it follows the exciting narrative of one single main character and that main character is a muslim man from central africa named bashara who had everything going for him until a chance encounter dramatically changed the course of his life his story is nothing short of supernatural as he risks it all to follow jesus from strange dreams and guns that misfire to imprisonments and miraculous healings bashara's story may sound too wild to be true Decide for yourself by listening today at pioneers.org slash maverick.